Welcome into District 1 Sports. Mike and Micah, we are finally back with you. We do apologize, but like we said in our last pod, a lot of moving parts over these last couple of weeks, different things going on in our own lives. So we're trying to get back to our schedule. And man, Micah, we thought we could take a little bit of downtime here because it's July. You know, sports aren't really going on like that. You have your baseball, but baseball it doesn't even ramp up until end of August, September, and then October, obviously. Football hadn't started yet. We were just getting in the mix of training camp. And then over a week span, Micah, it felt like DC could not stay out of the headlines. The Nationals traded everybody away. Max Scherzer, the GOAT of the Nationals, is gone. Trey Turner, one of the best players in baseball, is gone from the team. They traded uh, Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes, Kyle Schwarber, um, John Lester. Almost every vet besides Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman were shipped off uh, in the past week. Then we go over to the Washington Wizards. We have Russell Westbrook, who requested a trade. He gets his trade accepted, and we bring in Kyle Kuzma, Catavius Caldwell-Pope, KCP. Um, we bring in uh, Montrez Harrell. We then sign and trade for Spencer Dinwiddie. We then get a first-round pick from the Lakers, use that to trade for Aaron Holiday, and then draft Isaiah Todd. We also draft um, Corey Kispert. So much has happened with the Wizards now that they had that major five-team deal. So we'll talk about all the implications with that, um, along with having just so much news in D.C. with your Washington football team. Training camp is going on. The competitions that we thought we would see and that would be very competitive have lived up to that. Maybe except quarterback. It does seem like it is Fitzpatrick's job, but we'll get to it. So, so much to do. And Micah, honestly, I didn't know where to start. I didn't know what was most important. Everything seems so important today. So... I'm going to let you pick. Where should we be starting today talking on this pod? So let's start in chronological order. Let's start from the very top and and move down. Um, And maybe my chronological order might be off. Let's start with the Nationals. I think that's my probably the point. That was first. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's go chronological order here with the Nats. Um, My biggest thing with the Nats and, you know, I am a self-proclaimed, I will call me a warm weather kind of fan when it comes to baseball and the Nationals in general, but I always kind of tune in around this time when it's that dead period, and I kind of tune in what's happening and seeing what's going on. So, I have guys I want to see, players I want to see, teams I want to see, you know? And then I'm looking, and the Nationals are basically clearing house. It's not, they're not the only team that did it. I noticed that the Cubs were kind of going the same route, and other teams kind of participated in selling their top-level guys to actual contenders and getting younger. And what I see not the Nationals was something that we talk about a lot in other DC sports, but is really actually playing out here too. If you're going to trade guys and you want to, you know, kind of restart the ship, the best way to do it is to trade the best guys you have, but get the best top end young talent you can too. And for what it's looked like and from what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, how it's developing and what could possibly happen, I feel like the Nationals did absolutely that. And we'll see how this plays out. It's way too early to tell, especially in baseball. There's so much inner workings of a season and what staff is going to get the best out of these guys and what lineups work best and this, that, and the third. But when you're getting top-level pitchers and you're getting guys that are going to be able to effectively kind of replace the guys that they traded for, not necessarily immediately, but down the road, you hope that this is what happens, then I can't necessarily be mad at the Nationals. And as a Fairweather fan, you hate to see your favorite players go. I mean, I've come to know guys like Max being the Hall of Fame player that he is. I've come to know the fact that Trey Turner is 
if not the best, one of the best players at his position. And you kind of just see these guys, and of course, um, Kyle Schwarber kind of was just doing his thing this season as far as hitting, but when you see this happen and you see kind of a reset of a franchise, you hope that, for one, they keep all the guys that are going to be um, purposeful and play a big role in the future. You hope they're all there. And Juan Soto still being here, mixing in with the rest of these young guys, and basically kind of restarting the ship around Juan Soto, I think that's the right path. It's going to be interesting, like I said, to see how it plays out. But I do think that if you're going to trade all your top guys, you have to get the best young guys in return. And it seems like on paper they kind of did that. So I'm not necessarily mad. I'm just interested in what this process looks like going forward. So as Mike has said, this move is a lot. It's a lot to take in, to be honest. I am more of a big baseball guy. I've watched every Nats game this season. Like it's it's my thing once summertime comes around, I am watching every Nats game, living and dying by every pitch. So when I first see it, that 2019 team was very special. They were extremely special. They had all the right mixture of youth in Soto, in Robles, Trey Turner, I guess what you could say was still young then. Um, but they also had the veterans. They had your Howie Kendricks, you had your Rendones, you had your Zims. Like you had a mix of everybody there that it made for a perfect team. And 2020 was such a crapshoot that everybody said, Hey, let's throw this out. Uh, let's throw this year out. And I was like, sure, I'm, I'm going to convince myself that. But then if we look back at it every single year at this point that Davey has been on the Nationals, they've had a losing season except for the year that they won the World Series. And in that season, they were 19 and 31. So that does, that goes to show that this is not just a rash decision. Let's just go off and sell everything. It's, if we look at the whole sample size, we got lucky. And, and let me not say lucky because it was a very talented team, but everything stacked up so well for you. You went 19 and 31, were able to come back, won the wild card. And because you had such a dominant rotation, you were able to win the World Series. The thing that I guess, put me at ease here was Mike Rizzo has built a World Series champion. And if the GM of the team sees that, hey, with what we have right now, with Strasburg being injured and has started four games in the past two years, and he's eating up over $30 million um, a year with um, worth of um, spending money, and with Corbin, who you paid big bucks to for seven years, now having a five ERA, we got to find a way to pivot to get ourselves some better position players because we're not going to be able to spend big in free agency. That's what the Dodgers and the Yankees can do because their payroll is unlimited. They just have all the money in the world. The Nats are a top 10 uh, payroll, but I mean, the learners aren't swimming in it. The, uh, obviously, they're swimming in it, but in comparison to actual um, the other top baseball teams, they're not, they're not the uh, top of the top. So he said, you know what? I'm going to try to trade and get whatever I can. Packaging Serzer and Turner, so smart. To get JoJo Gray, who Mike and I, we've just been sending uh, the pinching uh, ninja uh, videos back and forth. His slider plays, he's given up two earned runs in his two starts with the Nationals. You can't, you can't ask for anything better. He's a top-level um, a top level guy, was the number one pitching recruit. He's just started pitching, and he's um, top pitching prospect. He just started pitching and is getting better each and every start. Then you have Kbert Ruiz, the number two, um, the number two uh, player in the Dodger system, who is a top level catcher, 
who can hit for power, who hit a home run his first game with uh, the Nationals minor leagues. And obviously we know because of arbitration and stuff, he's not starting in the majors. But something that I do want to point out, and Micah, you could talk on this a little bit, the difference between the Nationals and the O's who have seemed to be in a rebuild for almost like six years now is all, almost all of the players that the National got in this, in this rebuild, they're almost major league ready. Like as good as Adley is, He's still just going to AAA while JoJo is already pitching in the majors. And they said that Kbert is going to be up in September. So this is a much quicker rebuild. And yes, it's still going to potentially suck next year if the team decides, like, hey, let's hold off one more year. Let's get another high draft pick, and then we'll go all in in 2023. But I think that this rebuild is also going to be a little bit faster than your normal rebuilds. What do you think, Michael? It's absolutely going to be faster. And you're already seeing that in the types of move they're making. We can no flashback real quick to the O's. I don't necessarily have the full details and whatnot, but essentially what happened when they traded Manny Machado. They traded Manny Machado for Yusniel Diaz and some guys that aren't necessarily key roster players right now. So they traded them, traded Manny Machado basically for a look into the future, and the future hasn't necessarily panned out yet with that trade. But since then, and that point going forward, really the only player of note that's going to be a guy that's going to be MOB possible all-star you know one of the best players at his position if not the best in the future is Adley and yes the O's have going to consistently bring out a lot of talent that can compete on their own levels on each level triple a double a whatever it is but you just mentioned it the fact that Adley has already been in the system for almost three years now it's two years now two solid years a COVID year one you know one strong year one COVID year but two years and the fact that he's only getting the triple a it is not a um a knock on him. It's not his fault that this is happening. But in every stop, they kind of need him there. They kind of need him to go through this process and bleed it out. And that's not what's going to happen with the Nationals, clearly, because really just the top-end talent is already there. They're not necessarily trying to find guys that they can move up with Adley or just you know try to plug in Adley to the main roster and think it's going to do something. The Nationals have a... seems like they almost have a concise plan, and they're not just kind of winging it and getting um, top-level prospects and kind of just throwing stuff at the wall and making sure it works Nationals seem like they already kind of figured this out like you said it wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to things happening and it wasn't a situation where they felt like they had to sell the farm just to make things work it feels calculated and when you're moving in calculation instead of making things stick to the wall it's the difference between building up the farm to get to the main roster and having the main roster be the best the difference between having that and having just a great farm with only really one guy or a couple guys is going to make true differences when they get to the show. That's the difference. And the Nationals seem like they're doing it the right way. I think so. And unfortunately, people are going to be very upset with just giving away Trey Turner. And to be honest, let's actually go back. Mike and I texted about this, and we were very upset that we were going to trade Trey Turner once the rumor started. There was like, there's no way. We're boating around Trey Turner and Juan Soto. This has always been the plan. We, we would go to let other people walk. Yeah, Max will probably command a lot of money. He's still a great player, but he's old now for, for us. We just go to go ahead and give Trey um, what he wants and then Trey and Soto for the future. And then after I listened to Rizzo, uh, uh, Mike Rizzo and hear him talk about how well, we have to figure out like what we want to do. It's a 28-year-old player. Trey's not super young. He's not Soto. Obviously, he still has a lot of great baseball ahead of him. 
But just look at how these contracts age for a lot of these people. The only people that it's really worked out for is the best player in baseball, Mike Trout, where he's hurt this year, but whenever he's playing, he's the best player in baseball. Anthony Rendon, who we let walk, has been injured for his two seasons with the Angels. Steven Strasburg, who we just gave a massive contract to, has pitched four times in two years. Patrick Corbin, not as big of a deal, but a seven-year deal, and now he has a five-year So it's like we go ahead and commend uh, Rizzo for not signing Rendon, seeing the warning signs there that he is somebody that gets injured a lot. We may not want to give him the money. Then we go ahead and tear him down for the Steven Strasburg deal. And then we'll tear him down for the Patrick Corbin deal. It's like you have to figure out which way you want it because you he's not a genie. He doesn't know the fu- like he doesn't know what's gonna happen in the future. So you have to go ahead and play your cards. And if Trey Turner is still balling at 36 years old and one of the best players in baseball, it's gonna suck. But if JoJo Gray becomes uh, a 10 time all star for the Washington Nationals, if Kaber becomes one of the top catchers in the league, I think we would say that we won that trade. We were happy with what we got back for two greats of the Washington Nationals. And as long as Max is obviously retiring a national and Trey is still young. And if he wins another World Series, maybe he retires as another player. But those two guys are Nats for life. You win a, a World Series, those are your guys for life. So mm-hmm. I watched Max's first game. It was exciting. It was fun. Seeing him in the Dodgers blue was definitely weird. But you have to get used to it. This is what... Uh, the business is you're not going to be able to be a sustained winner like the Dodgers and even the Yankees they're not even a sustained winner anymore they haven't won a World Series in a long time it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of luck and it takes a lot of uh, great player development and the Nationals have proven to do it once before Bryce Harper and Juan Soto were in the same outfield their last year here like he's able to do this so everybody take a deep breath it's going to take a couple of years but I do believe the Nats will be back and yeah, they suck now. They're losing a lot of games, but we've, we've been there before with this Nationals team, and we'll, we'll be able to get out of it pretty soon. Moving on from the Nationals, Micah, what are, where are we going to next? Let's hop into the Washington Wizards, who made a lot of interesting moves since we last talked, man. A lot of interesting moves. This, you, can, you, know, you can bring it in if you want. You can break down the details of this trade. Um but it's interesting, and we can kind of just get to it, man. Like, this is this is a lot. Yeah, so I, I want to break it down a little piece by piece here. So let's start with the Russell Westbrook aspect of it. Obviously, we've made it known on this podcast uh, throughout the season on our thoughts on Russell Westbrook. There'll be some pods we came in, we were like, it's tough out there, man, but we got to keep rocking with him. And there's <laughs> other pods, it's like, hey, he still got it. And... The one thing that stuck out to both of us in Tommy's post-game, not post-game, post-season press conference, he said that this is not a running back type of team. Now, Mike and I said, okay, how exactly are we not going to run it back? We don't have any cap space. We have one of the biggest contracts in the NBA. Honestly, who's going to want that contract and what are they going to want it for? Like, we can't get nothing in return for that contract. So how exactly are we going to balance keeping Beal happy? building a competitive winner, and then on top of that, get a team to somehow take Russell Westbrook's contract. And Tommy did all three. So with the Russell Westbrook aspect, what do you think, what do you like most about that deal? Because I know for a fact that almost every Wizard fan is in love with this deal. You got a first round pickback for Russ. It is John Wall into Kuzma, 
Harrell, KCP, a first-round pick, Aaron Holiday, and Isaiah Todd. That's all I have to say. Like, that's amazing. It's so good, and it's confirmation for us fans and those that really follow the Wizards that Tommy knows what the hell he is doing, and we need to chill out just a little bit. It's okay to question him sometimes, but let's not act like he hasn't been really putting this roster every year, at the very worst, in a position to compete. We haven't bought him out yet, which is, I would almost say that's surprising, given the fact that like some of the stretches that we've been on, I mean, obviously that, that Beal year, <laughs> when it was just him, that was really, really bad. That's as close to bottoming it out as you can get, but... Outside of that one year, they've still been able to be relatively competitive. Maybe it's not always pretty, but it's competitive. But trading Russ, and we can no, let's get to it. Let's just let's just say this. Trading Russ to the Lakers, who I guess they need a Russ, and they didn't really need the players that they traded. I mean, I think that they're kind of going to miss KCP and what he did because he was kind of that glue guy when things got really bad, and it got really bad sometimes in L.A. But they didn't miss Kuz, obviously. They definitely... <laughs> Definitely, we're not missing uh, Montrezl Harrell because wasn't even being used correctly. And like I said, KCP is kind of that glue guy, but he's it's not really you're not missing too much. But for us, for the Wizards, this fills all of our needs that we've been kind of vying for, and it's still maybe like one or two needs. We'll see how you know that goes. That we still need maybe a nice wing, maybe a, a two way defender or a three and D kind of guy, two way player, maybe another player that could score kind of put it on but maybe some development kind of goes into that and scheme which is really important you can match some of these top level scoring deficiencies with great scheme and getting guys into position and i think that might be the kind of the play here but when you fill out your roster with guys that have specialties and specialties that they're actually good at kcp great 3 and d player plays the game the right way he's not really a, a guy that's going to force a lot he knows how to play his role as evident as playing alongside Brown and literally won a championship, being there for, you know, in just tough situations for the Lakers team. It's really, really matters. Montrez Harrell, when used correctly, there may not be another great six-man big that's going to be in the league right now. And he won six-man of the year for a reason. When he was with the Clippers, they used him in the perfect way, coming off the bench, giving him a lot of energy, still giving him a lot of minutes. Pairing him with the starters, getting creative with how you're using him. But him just showing up every night and being inspired to show up every night is a big thing. We haven't seen a guy like Montrezl Harrell around here since, man, since Markeith Morris was around here. A guy that is not playing any of that sweet stuff on the court. Let's just be frank about it. He's going to be able to get gritty on the boards if it comes to it. But it has enough scoring ability to not just be a one-tiered or one-sided player. And then kind of the X factor in all of this, and just the trade part in general, is Kyle Kuzma. Because if you get a Kuzma that isn't necessarily being asked to lead the second unit and isn't asked to, you know, bear the weight of responsibility while LeBron James is on the court, I think you have a guy who is looking to prove himself for one because he's out of that L.A. media, he's out of the limelight of NBA media and NBA Twitter, which I, I definitely know some of these young guys are definitely tuned in and know that their name is being slandered, and Kuz is absolutely one of them, as evident by what he kind of reposts and stuff like that. He knows that he kind of let down LA fans at times, and I think being in the Wizards who, for all purposes, you know, for all things considered, 
aren't necessarily a big market NBA team, even though Washington, D.C. is in the metropolitan area, is a huge market, you're not getting ton of um, national coverage. You're not getting a ton of looks and eyes on you. And if you're a guy that's looking to redeem themselves and really put your foot to the ground and improve your game, I really don't honestly see a better place to do it than D.C. So that's just the trade with Russ aside. And altogether, what it does is it makes your unit more cohesive. And when you add guys like Spencer Dinwiddie and you draft guys like Corey Kispert and Isaiah Todd, the roster itself as a whole makes more sense than it does with Russell. And I think that, honestly, I don't think there's no any losers in this trade yet because we haven't really seen but I think on paper it made sense for both teams, and I really think that this is the right deal to do, and Tommy doing it is just is really just amazing. Mike, you said that perfectly. Eloquent in all forms. There's nothing I disagree with there. I think the biggest thing is just how complete this roster feels. Yeah. And we talked about it. There's still probably a need for a backup shooting guard. Um, we just got a, a report about an hour ago that uh, Dinwiddie's number, who we'll get to, is actually more three for uh, 54 because that last year is partially guaranteed. So they could still sign a shooting guard on the minimum. Getting another guard will be great. They re-sign Neto. Um, they have Holiday. They have Dinwiddie. But that forward position, it's something that I have harped on all year where it was the forwards that were really winning playoff series and championships for these teams. Like, the Phoenix Suns got to the playoffs, obviously, because of CP3 and Devin Booker. But if you look at it, the production that they got from their forwards, whether it be 3 and D from Cam Johnson, Jay Crowder, Bridges, they all had their individual games, and they were all able to switch, all play scrappy. And you have your superstars, of course, but having that depth was able to get them going. And also, it was that depth that lost them the championship because they didn't have anybody behind Aiton, really, to get them going um, to get him going uh, on the other end whenever Aiton decided to sit. Looking at a team like the Washington Wizards, our small forward slash power forward depth was Denny Rui, Chandler Hutchinson, Davis Bertans, Isak Bonga. Like, this is what <laughs> we were throwing out there when we wanted to be deep a- as a team. That wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to get us anywhere. Now you look at it and you're like, okay, I don't even know what the starting lineup is going to be. I mean, we can assume Dinwiddie, Beal, KCP, Rui, and Gafford. But depending on the game, he may start uh, Thomas Bryant. He may start Harrell. You may see Kuz in the starting lineup. Right. Like, there's so many combinations and machinations you can make with each um, lineup that it makes it attractive to watch actually quality basketball. You're not getting that huge drop-off that you get from a Rui to go down to a bonga or something like that. And I'm not saying Rui is a high-level talent. I do believe he'll be one in this league. But right now, you go from Rui to Kuz, it's probably a step up just because of how much more experience Kuz has had in the league. You're not really taking any step downs in any positions. Bert, um, Avdia last year was probably the best one-on-one defender we had on the team. So you go from KCP, and then you have another defender coming in in Avdia. Harrow, such a, and like you said, it has to be used in the right situation, and that falls on West. And West now has a team that he has to be able to build and produce here because this is not a team that lacks talent at all. So Harrow comes in, you can now fit him into the mix and put him in the best position. So everything works so well for this team. They just have to be able to figure out and put it together 
the uh, the pieces together. Tommy has given him the puzzle. Now, Wes just has to put it together and put them in a position where they are a competitive team. I Honestly, after looking at this team over and over again, and we haven't even talked about Corey. We'll get to him, too. This is a team that has to be fighting for that four or five seed. That was the Knicks and the Hawks last year. The Hawks also a team with a lot of depth. John Collins, Cam Reddish came back. They had Hunter before he got hurt. Like these are teams that had multiple forwards. If we can duplicate that, there is no reason why we shouldn't be a four to five in that four to five seed mix come next year. There's absolutely no reason. And this is what we kind of wanted out of this team. Even if they had kept Russ, we've talked about how that four to five seed should have been the sweet spot. If everything went right and everybody was healthy, they probably would have been in that four to five seed. So this is what this team is, even with making all of the moves. I think they're actually better suited for the playoffs now, making all of the moves, because it's not going to be a situation where what we've seen last year, where it's two guys trying to duel it out. They're going to take a majority of the shots. We, you know, we harped on it, man. They're going to take a majority of the shots. They're not going to be efficient. They're going to turn the ball over, but they have no other choice. This is what they have to do just to compete a little bit. Now, is not the case. Not even close. The only player that I think is truly ball dominant on this team now is Bradley Beal, which is fine if you want him to be your As thirty point be. scorer. Exactly. If you want him to be your thirty point scorer, that's great. Let him be your thirty point scorer. Let him command a lot of the offense. But that's one guy. But you fill Bradley Beal. We, you know, if you want to fill a Bradley Beal lineup and a, fa- a Bradley Beal team with guys who can do it on both ways, that are going to give effort and they can kind of police themselves and not in the in the police themselves last way uh last year way where it's just russ kind of just getting on you because he knows scott brooks and he know he has that rapport with him but in the accountability way the true accountability way where we all kind of know that west unsell jr he's not going to be scott brooks he's going to actually have a scheme we can kind of already tell that just because of the work he's done that when he puts in the work and when he formulates it and when he finally comes out with this let's call it a combination when he comes out with the formula it's going to be able to have results but they have to buy in and i think this team is in a better place where they have guys like montrez harrell who bought in the systems like the clippers who didn't buy in the systems like the lakers because he wasn't respected you're getting in a situation where these guys are going to be able to be put in the best position they can not overextend themselves because we have enough depth where they don't have to overextend themselves and as you mentioned, you can get really, really creative with a lot of these lineups. I mean, I was just thinking you mentioned the two lineups that you're probably going to see most of the season. But if they even want to go super small, if they want to play for some reason, for some strange reason, you know what I'm saying? They want to play Kuz at the four or run some lineups like that with Trez at the five, Kuz at the four, KCP at the three, Beal at two, and Dinwiddie at the one. Well, they can do that because they have the depth to do that. And on their bench, they won't be hurt because they still have Denny. You still have Neto, you still have Bertans, you still have Gafford, you still have TB if you want to use them. There's so many other, I didn't even mention, we keep mentioning out, we keep missing the fact that we have Aaron Holiday and Corey Kispert just sitting there. Isaiah Todd is part of this roster. Like, there's so much more you can do when you have guys that have middling skill sets, but they do this middle thing really, really well. And I, I do think that the Wizards have put themselves in a position where they can out-depth some of these teams. Like the Knicks, they can out-depth the Knicks now. Definitely they can out-depth the Knicks. Now the Hawks, that's going to be interesting. But I think the Wizards put themselves in a position where they can actually compete when the playoffs come 
because I do think they're going to be there, but they can compete and compete in a way where it's not like, oh, you know, they're playing the Sixers. This is going to be great if they get a win. Even if Embiid gets hurt, you know, it's nice just to see them out there balling. It's like, no, this team, if used correctly and coached correctly, this team could be dangerous. And not dangerous like a conference finals bit. Let's not say that. But make it to the second round and at least in the second round giving a fight. I think that's a step up for the Wizards. And I think this is what the path is for them. Yeah. And with this lineup thing, like Corey Kispert, let's talk about him real quick. I don't know where his minutes are coming from. Because Rui, I'm sorry, he still should get the majority of those small forward, power forward minutes wherever they decide to play him. He's that good to me that he's getting those minutes. You're not going to sit Kuz. Like, that's not happening. You're not really sitting Montrez if you want to play big with Gafford and Montrez. So, Corey, I guess it's kind of a good spot to be if you're the Wizards. With so many forwards, your first-round pick, you don't even know where he's going to play. Like, I didn't even mention Bertans, and Bertans is a big question mark in all this because when Bertans is on, you do want him on the floor because of his spacing and how quickly he can turn um, a six-point uh, six defi- uh, deficit into a three-point lead for the Wizards. So it's just interesting to me to see, like, what do you expect from Corey this year now that this Wizards' depth is crazy? What's honestly crazy is... They might send him down to the G League for some assignments. And it's not to say, like, he deserves it or he's bad. But simply for the fact that, I mean, a guy, especially a shooter, the last thing you want is to have a shooter up here and just have him cold. Like, you're going to want him to keep shooting because there's going to be a point where he's going to have to fill in some key minutes, whether it's 10 minutes a game or something like that, or somebody's missing a game. There's going to be times where Corey's going to have to shine. And there's going to be times where he makes six or seven threes in a game this year. But... And like you said, it's a luxury, and it's a beautiful thing that you can draft a first-round guy in the top 16, you know, and he doesn't have to play automatically. You don't expect him to be an all-star for you to change your uh, franchise drastically. And I think that's that's perfect. That's what we've almost expected from Rui and Denny, where it's like, we need these guys to be absolute playmakers immediately for us if we want to be serious contenders. Like, there's no circumstance in which Denny should have been starting at small forward last year. It just shouldn't have happened. But because we didn't have anything that he was thrust into that position with a ball handler like Russ, he wasn't getting his touches. He was put into a position where he became a spot-up shooter and not his natural playmaking Self. Now he goes to the bench and can run that second unit. And I think we see a totally different Denny this year compared to last year. And absolutely. And you made the great point that these guys were playing out of necessity. It wasn't because they were the best players and necessarily step into that role right now. It was because if they didn't do it and they didn't produce because they were the first round picks, then it was just a wash. And everything that happened before it was just a mistake. But with Corey coming in, you're asking a guy to be the one skill set you were really, really great at in college, and that is a shooter. The man can shoot. Let's not make any other, you know, reservations about it. Let's let's not act like he can't do this. His senior year, he was almost a 50-40-90 player. In college, that's amazing. Um, And, of course, there's many reasons why that is. I mean, he was kind of just feeding off of shots. He got a majority of the shots in college. I mean, if you're shooting almost 12 to 13 shots in college, that basically means the offense is almost running through you pretty much of course they had higher end players but he is a shooter and all you're asking him to do in year one is to shoot and i don't i don't know a better situation for a rookie player because i mean this guy's drafted after him that's gonna have to play 
legit minutes and have to produce right on. And he's not going to have to do that. So, like I said, I, I do think there's going to be times where Corey is just getting mixed into the second unit a lot. He might run. He might run a lot of the second unit um, with Denny, whoever else they're going to, you know, figure it out. But you're not going to get a ton of actual game time from him. Like, he's not going to be a, a guy that you want to necessarily play every night unless he's just, well, unless Berton stays, you know, hurt, traded, whatever the case may that's, be. That's exactly where I want to go real quick, Micah. Yep. How does this work with Bertans though? Because it does seem like their skill sets are almost identical. Now, let me give uh, Kispert credit. Watching the tournament, watching Gonzaga play, he was a little bit more active on defense. Now, granted, the conference he played in wasn't all that great. And in the championship game, he did not look great against Baylor. And NBA is a step up in competition. But maybe he is a slightly better defender than Bertans. Does that mean Bertans now becomes a new Yan Mahimi where he's just sitting on the bench getting $18 million a year? I think this becomes a situation where Bertans is on this trade block, but it's not like a, oh, the block is hot for him type of trade block. It's a, hey, you know, we have Bertans here. We just drafted Corey. We don't necessarily need Bertans because we have a guy with the same, uh, same skill set that obviously is way cheaper and younger. So contending teams, let's just talk about this. Let's get the guy off our roster. And then, like I said, it's not because Bertans is bad by any stretch of the imagination. But these, um, you mentioned it, man. Their skills are kind of redundant here. And in some sports, redundancy kind of works. Like, you know, if you have 53 players, you kind of need some redundancy just so you can fill those needs. But in basketball, where at the max, you can only really keep 15 and really only 10 a night, really 10 to 11 a night. If you have 11 or 12 players, you, you have a coach that's really getting into those rotations, man. But, you know, on a normal night, 10 guys or nine guys are playing. And in the playoffs, that's seven to eight guys. It's going to be really tight for some spots. And if you have two guys with the same skill set, it's going to be really interesting. So I would say that Bertans is going to be on like a, a soft trade block kind of thing. But if not, you're going to have a log jam at wings that can shoot. So, I mean, maybe, you know, more than merrier. We'll see what happens with that. But as long as Bertans is here, it's kind of in the way of what Corey is going to be able to do on your team. And if Bertans is gone, well, there's a spot for Corey. So we'll see what happens. But that's definitely an interesting um I guess, connection between those two because who knows what's going to happen because they're not going to cut Corey because he just got there. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Corey's going to play. So exactly what I see it is, and you brought it up, the trade deadline is going to be very important for this Wizards team. A couple of things. If the Wizards are in a place where they're really clicking on all cylinders and their role players are looking really great, you might just want to stick it out and just wait till the offseason, move these pieces again still retain some depth, but get a bona fide second star in the mix. On the other end, if the Wizards and Bertans not getting many minutes, but he's still pretty productive, we can get an expiring deal right back from one of these contenders. Somebody's going to have 18 mil and they're looking for a shooter, somebody that can just light it up, and they'll be willing to, at that time, to overpay for Bertans for getting his contract. Just, hey, we got to win. Somebody like the Phoenix Suns is like, hey, Chris Pauly has a couple years left. Jay Crowder is great and all. Cam Johnson is great, but we need a true sniper. They go ahead and trade for um, Bertans, and you go ahead and get an expiring deal back. It frees up cap space. So I do think Bertans, he will start the season on the team, but I think that it will be interesting to see how exactly they decide to run with um, these lineups, and that's going to be Wes's job, and it's a good headache to have, honestly. Like It's not like, oh, can we push Brad to 45 minutes? Can Rui play 30? No. Like, give everybody reasonable minutes and let your your 
good players keep playing and just keep rotating them, keeping them fresh, and honestly, all of it's going to work. Lastly, with the Wizards, Micah, Spencer Dinwiddie. Obviously coming off of ACL, so we haven't seen him in a year, but before he left, he led that Nets team when Kyrie was out with injury and was he going to get surgery and all that good stuff. KD obviously was recovering from Achilles. He led that Nets team that nobody thought would be a playoff team to the playoffs. What do you think he brings to the Wizards? And I want you to compare and contrast with the Russ situation and how this would help the Wizards per se, and then also how it could hurt the Wizards now losing Russ versus having uh, Dinwiddie now. Absolutely. So let's start with what Dinwiddie did and, you know, in kind of a, a relief role at the point guard position for the Nets. His skill set is very, very solid. He's not a player that is, you know, drastically going to turn the ball over. He's not a guy who's going to force a lot of things on the court unless he has to. When I say unless he has to, unless he's really the only option that kind of can. And he had a propensity last year to, I would like to call it outshoot himself, but really just kind of have to force his way to kind of get shots up and you saw kind of a dip in his numbers but I don't think that's really him I think at his best he is a 43% guy from a field goal he is a 35% guy eh, yeah 35% guy from three point but you're getting a guy who can for one control an offense with pace that's not erratic like Russ which has its consequences and it has its benefits too that Russ pace but he's a guy who's going to say even killed and control the game. He is now a vet. He is, what, 27 years old. He is a guy who has seen it all in the league. He's been around since 2014. And really the biggest thing that I like is, well, for one, he wants to be here. But for two, he seems like a guy who can be a true leader in the way that Russ isn't, but be more of an example kind of guy. We got a lot of, I guess, stories you would say from and kind of on the court, too, how Russ, he might bring all his guys together in a confrontational way. And that's fine because it works at times. Like that meeting they had, that was a confrontational kind of meeting. Like this has to happen now. What are your roles? Let's do this. Let's make this happen. And on the court, Russ is a confrontational guy. I don't get that from Spencer Dinwiddie. And especially looking at his presser, because he is kind of the star free agency um, that was signed, uh, the star free agent for the Wizards that was signed. He's a guy who wants to be here. He was brought in the quote-unquote co-lead with Bradley Beal, which kind of already gives you a sense of what his role is going to be. But he's a guy that seems pretty likable, and he's a guy that is going to be able to probably speak to the guys in a certain type of way, not necessarily antagonize them, but be almost like a liaison for the coach. And that's extremely important. And it kind of all mixes into the court, on the court, I should say, because these guys are going to want to play with him, and they're not going to feel like... They're messing, like, if they mess up, that they're going to be in a situation where they're the reason, you know, they're getting antagonized now. I do think that Spencer Dinwiddie brings a lot of control and a lot of just natural skill and IQ to the point guard position, and that's fine. Now, the opposite side of this is there might be times where he's a little bit too lax, and there might be times where, and I mentioned with his shooting, that he's not necessarily taking the best shots just because he's not necessarily being asked to be the guy. And that was the difference between him and Russ because Russ might force it every single time, but the production's still going to be there. Now, it might be inefficient. It might be a situation where he's doing a little bit too much, but you know you're going to get 110 from Russ every night. And maybe I haven't seen enough Spencer Dinwiddie, and maybe it's just the vibes I'm getting from him. I don't know. But he doesn't seem like a guy's going to 
be able to do that all the time. And maybe that's why they sign, you know, they go after guys like Montrezl Harrell or they they go after other players that can bring a spark or some energy because Spencer Dinwiddie is Spencer Dinwiddie. He's kind of been an overlooked player in the NBA. He seems like a guy who just wants to be kind of, what did he say? He basically said, like, he wants to be loved in the league pretty much, which is a guy who feels like he's underappreciated. And I, I do think that his even killedness is a very direct contrast from Russ. And sometimes you kind of need the Russ method to get guys going. Like like I said, with that uh, with that meeting, you need a guy like Russ to antagonize the guys and get it going. But sometimes you need a little bit more of a Spencer Dinwiddie approach to have some patience with this. And especially when trying to rebuild a culture, this is a guy who's going to be able to set the culture on and off the court. So it definitely makes sense. And I'm not necessarily mad at the money. I know people are on Twitter are going to be quick to be like, oh, it's a reach. Oh, it's a reach. But... This is a guy who, like I said, is I mean, only you 27. You cannot be mad at this money. You can't be this mad at this money. This is a quality deal for Spencer Dinwiddie, where I saw it. Yama Mahimni was getting paid more six years ago than what Spencer Dinwiddie is getting now. Like, And this is with the knowledge. Spencer yeah, was, he said he was commanding like $80 million. He's down to 64 with really 54 of it guaranteed over the next three years. You made that point about Mahimi, and this is when the cap was way different now. You, you see guys getting big money every single day now. I mean, some veteran point guards are getting 200 mil. <laughs> oh, not, well, maybe not 200 mil, but 150. They're getting a lot of money out here, man. And getting Spencer for this kind of deal and kind of almost handing him the keys and a co-partnership with Beal, it's a beautiful scenario. And once again, shout out to Tommy for making that happen. But um, that's the, really the difference. Russ is going to be antagonizing on and off the court, and sometimes you need that head-strong kind of approach. And Spencer Dinwiddie, he's going to be really, really skilled, really nuanced in his game. You not, might not see a lot of flashes from him, like, oh, this is really Spencer Dinwiddie. The talent's off the charts. But you're not going to get situations where he's going to lose you the game with turnovers or just being a bonehead on the court or just taking just really, really dumb shots and making bad basketball mistakes. It's a it's a yin and yang kind of thing, man. If you like the Russ approach, then you'll miss Russ. But if you like a more calm and collective, typical, traditional-style point guard, then... I do think that with Dinwiddie, you're getting what you want as a true. I totally agree. Dinwiddie brings a different vibe to the team. Like you said, Russ is very go, go, go. Where Dinwiddie, he is go, but like he, he's also very calm. I think this allows the ball to be able to move more. And I hate, I hate that people keep bringing up counting stats when talking about Russell Westbrook and his assists. Yes, he gets a lot of assist numbers on just pure effort running down the court um, alley-oops and all that, but Russ isn't a great, like, passer when it's, we're sharing the ball. Um, I saw a stat, I forgot it was from, uh, wish I could credit them. Two years ago, where it was just Bradley Beal, there was Isaiah Thomas in the mix there, Ish Smith, just that terrible Wizards team. They were one of the best in pace, and I believe top five in passing. Russ came, they stayed one of the fastest teams in the NBA, but they dropped to 27th or 28th in passing. There's only one difference there, and that is Russell Westbrook. So, yeah, he may have the triple-double numbers for assists, but that doesn't mean that he's great at moving the ball all around the court for the Washington Wizards. I think the ball moves around a little bit more, and I think that's what helps this team um, in the future. Quickly, Micah, before um, we switch from Wizards and we still got to get to the Washington football team. But like you said, this is a big pod. We've missed a lot, so we're getting to it all. Right now, we're sitting here. It is a Monday night at 7.50 on August 9th. 
What seed will the Wizards finish in? What round of the playoffs, if they make the playoffs, will they be eliminated? I'm going to go ahead and place the Wizards in the fifth seed. The East as a whole kind of got better, and you're not going to expect a Giannis-led Bucks team to really get any worse. So those top three seeds, man, it's going to be really, really hard. And plus, you have teams like the Heat that re-upped. It's going to be a really, really competitive East this year, and I do think that the Wizards can secure a top five seed. So I have them placing fifth, and whoever really gets that fourth seed is going to be interesting. If, if you get a, let's say we replace uh, the Knicks, and we get a, a four or five with the Hawks and us and the Wizards. That's going to be really interesting, and in most scenarios, I would have the Wizards in year one of this thing being kind of a sleeper team that actually gets to the second round, but kind of gets bounced out immediately in the second round. It's kind of like, okay, you guys got here from scheme, and you guys got here from kind of, you know, playing your cards right, but in the second round, you haven't, you know, taken that necessary step yet to get up, but I think this is way better than where we were last year in even speaking this, because... I have us as a lock for the five seed. I have us as a lock for being a relatively competitive playoff team. And this is not really hyperbole or, or me just being a homer. I do think that this team will be more competitive in the playoffs last year than, or excuse me, more competitive in the playoffs this year than last year from the changes that they made for the entire roster. Less top heavy talent, but way more depth. We saw it with the Suns, man. You can make a run like that. And I'm not expecting them to make a run. Let's stop that here. They're not getting to the conference finals yet. But second round, losing in five to the second round, I'll be like, okay, for year one of something that could have went terrible and it didn't, that's fine. And I don't know how much it's going to be able to keep Brad here, but they see them finally get to that second round without John Wall, be in a position where they're actually competing in the second round, and you kind of see what could be, maybe if you attract another superstar or whatever the case might be. You can see this team kind of stay together and keep being a force in the East to come. But, um, yeah, man, five seed and second round exit. I think that's a win on the season for them. I think it may be the homer in me. I think it's because I liked all these moves so much. Maybe because I wanted Russ off this team so bad for cap flexibility reasons. And then I love the return back and everything. But I truly think, Micah, that this is a team that, for the first time in my life, I'm going to see the Wizards get to 50 wins. Ooh. They just ha- they just have the feel of, like, I, I don't think they'll be good in the playoffs. I get almost a Utah Jazz vibe from them where they are going to be such a good regular season team just with the amount of talent that they have that they can go ahead and win 50 games. But I don't know how well that translates into winning playoff series. I could see them going up against any combination of the Hawks, the Celtics, or the Heat in the first round. And with all those teams, they all have players, except for, I guess, maybe the Hawks, where you have a bona fide, like, one-two punch type of deal. Like, you have Tatum and Brown. You have Bam, Jimmy, and now Kyle. Like, you have Trey Young there, and he got contributions each game from somebody different, whether it was Bogey, or you had to, like, the Capella game, or you have your John Collins game. Like, the Wizards, at this point, really good team, but... Am I certain I could say Dinwiddie's going to be that one-two punch guy? I don't know. Can Rui take that step this year? Maybe. Hopefully um, we see that from Rui. But, again, you don't really know. So I think it's a great regular season team, 50-win team. We get the four seed. It's a tough fight in the first round, but I don't know if they get out of that. And one or two things can happen from that. Either Bradley Beal is requesting a trade out or Tommy Shepard is getting back into his bag and trading 
for a disgruntled superstar in that offseason. So the Wizards are in a great spot right now, as you can tell from our excitement, from moving on from Scott, moving on from Russ, bringing in Wes, uh, bringing in all these other players, drafting Corey Kispert and Isaiah Todd. I am so ready and so pumped for this season to start for the Washington Wizards. So the Wizards will be on the back burner a little bit. They do have a COVID issue now, so they haven't started Summer League. So we're still waiting to watch Corey Kispert and Isaiah Todd get started. But in our next week's pod, we'll talk about what they've done over um, their first couple of games of Summer League. Moving to, I think, the hottest team in D.C. right now is the Washington football team. All the reports coming out of camp are great. Everybody's loving this team. People are picking them to win the NFC East because of Dak's injury now, it seems like. Um, the defense is only getting better. Everybody loves the offense. Deami Brown is excelling on uh, during training camp, similar to Terry a couple of years ago. So, Micah, there was so much that we wanted to talk about, and I thought the best way you can do it is Washington football team decided to release their depth chart today which makes it easy for us because now we have things to talk about. So I do want to start with the position that I believe is the most contentious, the wide receiver. So it says here in the first unofficial depth chart that your wide receivers are, starting wide receivers are Terry McLaurin, Adam Humphreys, and Curtis Samuel. Now, both you and I, we both agree that by the end of the season, that Adam Humphreys is going to be on the bench and Deami Brown will be starting. But obviously for the first couple of days of training camp and for the first part of the season, I expect this. Our second team, we have Deami Brown, obviously, Steven Sims Jr. and Cam Sims. Steven Sims having a really good camp. Cam Sims proved himself last year that he was a number two when he didn't need to be. And now he's a number five and number six. And it's amazing. Third team, Isaiah Wright, DeAndre Carter, Antonio Gandy-Golden. Fourth team, Kelvin Harmon, uh, Dax Mil- uh, Milne, and Tony Brown. So, out of what you've seen here so far, what is the thing that caught your eye the most? And how do you see this wide receiver position uh, stacking up? Because we are we have talked about it. We believe they're going to take six wide receivers here. With what you've seen here, who are those six guys that are making it on the 53? So, yeah, my um uno- well, unofficial kind of official six guys so obviously our first three guys are locked really our first four guys are locked here so terry all pro let's let's not even make any mistake about it curtis samuel whenever he's healthy is going to be a really key part so obviously he's not going anywhere diami brown now (laughs) diami man um he's having a very terry mclaurin camp once again no hyperbole we're not giving this as you know fan service or anything like that man i seen it live for myself at the live practice dog he just has a way of getting open, and it's one of those things that you can't teach. It's kind of just natural receiver feel. I mean, there was a couple things. That I, I think a lot of people saw that uh, slant he ran against Kendall Fuller, but there was one comeback I saw, man, on the far side of the field where he wasn't targeted. I think Steven Montez might have uh, placed it to the other side, to the tight end on the field at the time, but he dropped Kendall Fuller, and Kendall Fuller, by all accounts, is a top 15 corner. Some people have him in the top 10. If, you know, depending on your needs and just specialty positions. But he literally dropped him, and after the play, Kendall Fuller walked up to him, hand extended, dapped him up. Dami Brown is a starter in this league, and by all accounts, he'll be the Z going forward in the season whenever Curtis Samuel gets healthy because Curtis Samuel is more of a natural slot. But, yeah, Dami Brown is him. Let's go to Adam Humphreys. Adam Humphreys is 
doing a great job as a Ryan Fitzpatrick slot receiver. Why is that? Because they have rapport. They was getting it in back in the Tampa Bay days. Adam Humphreys went somewhere else. Fitzpatrick, of course, went somewhere else. But that was his guy. When it all else fails, um, when it all failed with the Buccaneers and guys weren't open, Adam Humphreys was there. And Adam Humphreys is your prototypical slot receiver. And that skill set really matters. So I think those four guys are locked. Now, this is interesting because there's already four spots taken, and we really only have two more on the active roster. This is hard because guys like Cam Sims have made it to the point where you can't necessarily practice squat them and you can't necessarily cut them because of what they do all over the field. Cam Sims was really their gunner, their ace gunner last year, and that's a roster spot right there in my opinion. I don't think you can not have Cam Sims as your 53, especially because if guys get hurt, Cam Sims is going to be able to step up in a pinch. We saw it last year. So Cam Sims is that fifth spot. And then that sixth spot, I mean, there's a lot of talent, a lot of NFL talent for that sixth spot. And I think, honestly, because of how Steven Sims has really propelled himself back into the receiver race and how they value DeAndre Carter as a returner, I think that sixth spot is going to come down to who wins the return job. Because DeAndre Carter is set right now. As the first team punt returner, Steven Sims is second team punt returner. Steven Sims is second team kick returner as well. I think it's going to come down to a, a situation where you're getting a returner battle for that sixth spot. And we all know that Steven Sims Jr.'s punt skills, and really just his hands in general, were kind of iffy last year. There was a lot of issues with him fielding it and whatnot. And DeAndre Carter was brought here to literally be a returner. And I think in the preseason, you're going to see a literal return competition. They might go one-on-one for all we know to see who gets that sixth spot because that's who's going to get the sixth spot. It's not going to be Isaiah Wright this year who might end up back on the practice squad. I think that Dax Milne is a practice squad lock, even though he has a lot of talent. I just don't think that you have to play a your seventh-round receiver like they did with Trey Quinn because you're in a position where you don't have to play your seventh-round receiver like we did with Trey Quinn. You're not going to see, you know, well, I, I really don't know why um, Tony Brown is here, but Tony Brown is not making the roster. And what's really unfortunate here is I didn't mention two guys who are literally the guys who should be our jump ball guys, and that's Kelvin Harmon and Antonio Gandy-Golden. Now, AGG can get tagged, which he's probably going to get tagged, but Kelvin Harmon is really unfortunate, and it's not because of his skill, but I think he just missed out on the opportunity because he was hurt, things he couldn't control. But because he was hurt, he didn't really get to put on a show last year for the coaches because if Kelvin Harmon is playing last year he's obviously the Z receiver across from Terry and he probably has a a season where he's getting about 50 catches and he's getting about 650 yards his hands are that sure he's that solid of a receiver but when your receiver room is packed now what can you really do so my six guys of course we have Terry Curtis Samuel Dami Brown Adam Humphreys and then for my last two spots, I got Cam Sims, and I'm going to take Steven Sims Jr. just because DeAndre Carter is a great returner. But once again, and I talked about it even when we were talking about the, the Wizards, man, sometimes you got to have parity guys. And if Curtis Samuel keeps being hurt and we need somebody to run these dress sweeps or not, well, you know Steven Sims can do it because, if anything, he can do that. He's a pretty explosive yeah. athlete. He can get around the corner. He can make he guys have miss. To catch the ball there. No, he doesn't. It's getting right. It's getting handed right to him, man. It's getting handed right to him. 
But I think that having that skill set is going to override him in, in the competition with him versus DeAndre Carter. But those are my six guys. And then you see guys like Dax Mooney get tagged. You, not tagged, excuse me, get practice squatted. You see guys like Antonio Ganey Golden get practice squatted. And then, I mean, it sucks to say, but guys like Kelvin Harmon are going to be on the chopping block, man. Tony Brown, uh, he's going to be on the chopping block. DeAndre Carter on the chopping block. And especially in Kelvin Harmon's case, it's not because he's not skilled. Isaiah Wright, too, on the chopping block. But it's not because Kelvin Harmon isn't skilled. It's, a, it's just a log jam now. And you don't necessarily need the big, bruising kind of receiver when you have a guy like Logan Thomas who's having a phenomenal camp. And he's really getting most of the red zone targets. If there's no need for him and you're not making that six-man you know, receiver spot. There's no reason for you to have on, uh, to have you on the 53, and it's unfortunate. But those are the six, and it just looks like some of the guys that we are accustomed to in DC are just going to be left out. Great problems to have. Great problems great, to have. Similar to the Wizards, these are just great problems to have. Instead of discussing, oh, is Isaiah Wright going to start for us this week? Um, we're not talking about Dontrell Emmon, none of that. We're like, oh. Man, Kelvin Harmon, we did like a couple of things that he did, but he probably is not making this team. I agree with you on the six. Um, with the special teams and seeing that DeAndre Carter was the punt returner, that does give me slight pause because they are they saying that they like Carter a little bit more than Sims? Sims did have a fumbling problem, and I would not want him back there again as a punt returner this year. Like that's that would be on Ron, Ron being stupid and being like, okay. We messed up here by putting this guy back there. We didn't have any other options. And we spent the whole offseason without getting another option. And now he's fumbling again. That would just be a a blunder on Ron's fault. And I don't think that's the case. Ron is a very smart guy. So that's the only thing that gives me pause. But they say Steven Sims is having such a good camp. I don't see him um, not making the team. It's just weird that they have Steven Sims as the number two wide receiver and the number two uh, punt returner, but DeAndre Carter, the number three wide receiver, but the number one punt returner. So it's like, what would you rather have that three, one or the two, two? It's going to be interesting. Definitely to see, um, quickly, I want to touch on offensive line, Micah. Um, so uh, offensive line came out with our starters as Leno, Wes Schweizer, Chase Roulier, uh, Brandon Sheriff, Sam Cosme. First couple of things that I, I found here, it looks like they want to play Cosme off the start. Like this is, before we were like, oh, they're going to ease him into it. I think if Cosme can hold his own, and he's been doing it well these past couple of days against Montez Sweat, if he can hold his own, he's going to be playing and starting for the Washington football team game one. And he's just going to be that anchor for them. Potentially moving over to the left side uh, next year, but for the first year with having Charles Leno here, I think he's going to play that right tackle position. Another thing that I noticed, Sadiq Charles is playing that right guard and right tackle as the second team. So they love his versatility. That was something that we talked about when he came out of LSU is he can play tackle. He can play guard. They're very obviously, and I think we talked about it, grooming him to be the replacement of Ryan Kerrigan. Oh, uh, Brandon Sheriff, I mean. Um, with Sheriff leaving, Charles is just going to slide right in there and play alongside it, whether it's Cosme if he stays on the right side or wherever that right tackle is next year. With Cornelius Lucas now going back to the bench, it gives you great tackle depth. This is why they were able to release Morgan Moses because you're not going to have a situation where Sadiq, Cosme, and Lucas were all going to be on the bench. That wasn't going to work. It doesn't help anybody develop. So by moving everybody up one, you're still able to give yourself uh, more than enough flexibility to move around the offensive line in case things 
um, aren't working out this year. Wes Martin, for somebody that big props and thought he was going to start last year, he's now 13 left guard. That's a potential cut. That's a guy that could potentially be on the chopping block, just not be able to produce, and we don't see him going forward. So those are the couple of things that I saw on um, the tackle side. I do think that we what we see now is this first team uh, offense. I think it stays like this with uh, Leno, Sorcerer, Rui, Sheriff, and Cosme because they have been they had the continuity. Obviously, Lucas um, was out for a little bit. Cosme was able to slide in there and he took advantage of the opportunities. Had a rough for, uh, first couple of days, but since then has been able to produce at a level where. The team is now very excited. The beat reporters have been talking about how great he's been. And if you can handle Montez Sweat and Chase Young, how many other DNs in the league are you going to be worried about? So I think this O-line is shaping up really well for the Washington football team. This O-line is looking really, really good. And for a team or for a unit that with all the depth that they didn't necessarily have last year, finished in the top six according to PFF. And I would consider them, of course, losing Morgan Moses first, but getting better across the board. I can't necessarily complain, man. There's a lot of trust going on here because, I mean, you're playing a, a rookie at right tackle, which, I mean, it's better than playing him at left tackle, you know, but playing him at any tackle in general is a lot of faith. It's a lot, a lot of faith. You, you just don't throw. Yeah. You just don't throw guys out there immediately like that. But they must feel really, really good at having Cornelius Lucas kind of be that, let's just call him the, the combo guy. He can kind of flex on both sides if he needs to because, obviously, he was getting work. Um Doing, you know, doing a little bit of both. And Sadiq Charles kind of filling that tackle and that guard spot. Once again, you're at a situation. You don't see, you don't see that. You don't see that a lot. That's crazy. NFL anymore. Like, this guy is playing multiple positions. That is respect for he's an athlete. He can move, but he's strong enough to play guard. Like, that is a special type of talent. And once they finally lock him in at that right guard where I think he will, he's just only going to grow and get better in that position. He's probably honestly the Brandon Sheriff replacement. I mean, if you're trusting a guy with all this responsibility, I mean, literally, he's the only guy in here listed twice as a second, you know, like, hey, you know what? He could either be this or he could be this. It's a beautiful situation to be in. Once again, you didn't get worse from last year. You plug guys in who have a great outlook on the future that are talented, that just need a little bit more growth, but you didn't sacrifice anything. And that's probably the biggest thing with this Washington football team. They didn't sacrifice anything to get truly better. And when you do that, you're obviously going to get better in the season. There's no way you can get worse unless it's a complete failure of operations. So the O-line is looking really, really strong, and they're going to need it because, for one, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen our quarterbacks not get touched a lot every single game. Yeah, you said it there perfectly. I want to move over to defense, but quickly on offense. I don't think we have any complaints here. Um Tight end, Logan Thomas is obviously the first team. I was surprised to see John Bates as uh, the third string, but, I mean, that doesn't really matter. I don't know how many two tight end sets we're running, but Hemingway and Bates will both get um, time. Ryan Fitzpatrick is clearly going to be the starter. It's no competition going into camp. No matter what Taylor does, Ryan Fitzpatrick is that guy. And we all know Antonio Gibson is the starting running back. So just four categories there, four positions that nothing really to talk about just because we know where exactly – um, all of these players will be slotting into. Same thing with the D-line. Chase Young, Jerome Payne, Jonathan Allen, and Montez Sweat. No questions at all. Honestly, same thing with the linebackers with Holcomb, Davis, and Bostic. Now, I don't think Bostic is going to play 100% of the snaps like he did um, the year before, but there's going to be a little bit of a different 
machinations with DBs and safeties and corners, and we're going to get into that right now. So, Micah, corners. Kendall, William Jackson, first team. St. Juice, Jimmy, second team. Danny Johnson, Troy Apke, third team. Darrell Roberts uh, and Tory uh, McTire, fourth team. Then we have Greg Stroman, all fifth, sixth. I'm sorry, you're getting cut right now. Um, so let's just focus on those first four teams. With the cornerback position, there honestly, I can only say that there are five guys that I would want as cornerbacks on my team next year. That's Fuller, Jackson, St. Juice, Moreland, and Danny Johnson. Everybody else beside that, you can cut them, you can practice squad them, but I don't see the need to have more than just those corners on the team. Honestly, Danny Johnson, if he wasn't a kick returner, I would be cool with four and just keeping extra safeties. Yeah, um, usually they kind of split it five and five. Um, so you're going to see five corners and usually around five safeties. And if you just do the math off the top of your head, it pretty much adds up and it pretty much is even. Um, so let's just stop, you know, start at the corners real quick. There's been a lot of, um, I guess, premonition and talk that Kendall Fuller is going to be starting, but he's going to be taking a little bit of both, obviously, in sets where it's not nickel and there's only two corners he's going to be out there. But when it comes time for nickel packages and dime packages, you're going to see him in the slot. And that's because Benjamin St. Juice, he, he is the starting outside corner for what we're seeing. Like, and I even seen it. I even seen it in once again the live practice because these are some of the things that you want to see how guys present themselves. First of all, in the stadium, in front of fans, when the competition is being viewed by other people, that's not just you know media people or or fans way over on the side just looking. And Benjamin say Juice had a nice pick. He played good coverage, and I mean he's just bigger and taller than the guys out there, and that's really really going to be good for a lot more of the man looks they're looking to do with William Jackson and Benjamin St. Juice on the outside. Once again, it turns Kendall Fuller free in the slot where he's possibly the best slot corner in the NFL. A great situation to be. Now your backups. You're going to have Jimmy Moreland filling that always slot corner role. He's proved himself to be a decent enough player, but you're in a great situation where you're not asking Jimmy Jimmy Moreland to be your starter, but your backup in your dime corner. That's a beautiful situation because Jimmy Moreland has great ball skills. He doesn't have the natural size to take the majority of the downs and take the brunt of that punishment as a slot corner where you have to come up and tackle, you have to take on blocks. But as a dime guy where you're not really worried about that because everybody's your size, amazing. Um, and this is where it gets interesting because we already went through four guys, kind of like the receivers. This fifth thing is going to be interesting because there's been a lot of reports of Torrey McTire doing okay, making a lot of plays on the ball. There's been a lot of reports that Daryl Roberts has been doing that. Danny Johnson is obviously the guy who has the most experience. And honestly, I would want Danny Johnson getting the, you know, the active role and guys like Torrey McTire and Daryl Roberts. If you can even tag Daryl Roberts, you know, tag, or not tag him, excuse me, keep saying tag. If you can put Daryl Roberts on the practice squad, then that's fine. I don't know if you can, but Torrey McTire can definitely go there. I think he's, I think he's played too many. Yeah, he's played too many, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think he's going to be cut or on the team. He's probably in. I wouldn't be surprised if they cut him. And once again, it's not necessarily because of his skill. But when you're asking to fill out that last fifth corner role, you just need a guy who can do a little bit of everything. And with, of course, the idea that you can step in in the pinch when you really need it. And I think that Danny Johnson is that guy. Obviously, the experience helps. Not being guys like Greg Stroman and stuff like that also helps. But I do think that he is the fifth corner. 
And what's really interesting here is I'm just looking at the death chart. They have Troy Ackby kind of just hiding there as the <laughs> as the third team corner. That's not happening. Troy Ackby, he's not making his team. Um, definitely can't tag uh practice squad him anymore. So that's definitely not happening. Um, and I think the only guys that's you know here that's worth really uh practice squatting is going to be a guy like Tory McTire. Maybe they pick up a guy off waivers um for whoever gets cut in the league as well. But your five is going to be pretty simple, man. It's going to be Kendall Fuller, William Jackson, Benjamin St. Juice, Jimmy Moreland, and Danny Johnson. As you said, these are just the guys who are standing out the most. Tory McTire is having a great camp, and he might get awarded with a, a practice role, practice squad role, which I'm okay with. But once again, when you have a lot of safety depth to get into, too, uh, you really can't keep more than five corners. You're going to be hurting the safety depth, and you don't really want to hurt the safety depth this year because a lot is going to be happening with them. Yeah. Honestly, for me, I'm keeping four guys. Like Danny Johnson being a kick returner, I I feel like we could find somebody else. Like we can absolutely could, find somebody else. We can ask could Brown as, yeah. return like return kick. Like we can figure out something. But I would keep four just because you said it. The safeties. So our starting strong safety, Landon Collins, who I think has probably had the most positive camp besides maybe Montez Sweat, where he's just been everywhere. Crazy that he's just coming off an Achilles injury and dominating like this. Cam Curl, duh. Of course he's going to start. Yeah, he's not in the strong safety role, but he can play strong, he can play free. He'll play he'll play he'll play anything over this year as they're going to move throughout with the different looks in the Buffalo package. Um we talked about in a couple pods ago. Um you have DeSager Everett as your second team guy, uh Bobby McCain as your uh, other uh, second team free safety. You have Derek Forrest and you have uh Jeremy Reese. I'm keeping all six of those guys. Like I can't cut any of these guys. First of all, Forrest is, they said he's a great special teams guy, and he just drafted him. So he's obviously on this team. Rees, in his limited capacity, really excelled. The Chaser Everett is a hitter. And he also was the captain of special teams last year. Bobby McCain, we need another free, uh, just a cover guy. Like, Cam is good, and he can do everything. But if it's an obvious pass situation, you want your guy in the middle of the field to cover. So for me... It's four corners. We can figure it out with that. And let me get all six of these um, safeties here to be on this team because I think all of them bring something uh, a little bit different and it all works together with the way that Jack Del Rio and Ron want to run their defense. It's crazy. I absolutely agree. I And it's going to be if they do keep five. Now, I can also see them in a situation, you know, only keeping maybe – two active quarterbacks and having uh you know that 11th db kind of sneak in there so maybe they still keep six safeties and have five corners and kind of just you know trim the fat somewhere else like as, as a practice squad maybe, thing yeah, lose a o-lineman here and yeah. yeah they can there are a lot of different ways they can run with it but for me you got to keep the six i think you know and I, this is where I, that's exactly what i'm getting to i think you have to keep all six because landon's going to be more than just your typical top of the field strong safety cam is going to be more than that I mean, Bobby McCain has a role as your center fielder, deep safety. DeShazer Everett is literally a special teams captain for a reason for years now. I mean, he gets it done on the special teams. You can't. That's the third phase of the game. You're not getting rid of a guy who produces on special teams. Same reason why they're probably going to keep Cam Sims, because these guys have active roles on the third phase of the uh, football game. Derek Forrest, you spend a draft pick on him, and he is a physical just just guy, a football player out there, you're going to find ways to get him being physical, whether it's short yard stuff, goal line packages, you're going to be able to plug him in and he's going to be able to do something on the field. And then Jeremy Reeves is 
for all the talent that he doesn't necessarily have, he's such a smart player. When he filled in last year, there was times where PFF, just because of how they rank, you know, how they grade players, they had him in, like, the top 10 safeties at times just because of the fact that he was making every play correctly. He didn't have the explosiveness, the you know, in the closing speed, then maybe capitalizing it, pass breakups, PBUs, or, or whatever the case may be. But he was very, very smart and knew his assignment every time. And you're not getting rid of a guy like that either just because of the back end. You kind of need everybody all hands on deck kind of approach here. Cole Lucas is kind of the guy left out. He honestly might get the practice squad. But you're in a great situation with these six guys because, like you mentioned, there's so many ways and facets they're going to be used in the football game that if you don't have one of these six, your team is probably not as good. And it's crazy to say that you can have six safeties that all have a considerable role on the team, but all six of these guys are going to have a considerable role during this 17-game season this year. So if they keep 11 DBs, honestly, bro, I would not be surprised at all because you kind of need all 11 of these guys to make this defense work this year. I totally agree with you there. And that's where we're at. I just think the number one thing for me this training camp, it's so different from last year with Obviously, none of the drama surrounding the team. They've gotten their vaccinations up. They're competing, and good players are going to get cut, or players that we thought that would contribute on this team for multiple years are going to get cut. That's how it goes. We saw what happened last year where Ron cut uh, uh, Adrian Peterson, and everybody was stunned, but we saw what it brought with AG. Somebody that we know, somebody that's very popular on the team, somebody that we think is definitely on the roster will not be there when it starts and it's going to be surprising but ron has already shown that he's able to figure it out once he gets these things going like i said that's going to wrap it up for this pod mike and i i think we may be back we haven't talked about it yet i was thinking about this while we were recording we may be back thursday night or friday night maybe recap um washington football's uh, first preseason game because they just say the starters are going to play ron did so if we get the starters for a couple of series let's see what we what we could see from this new offense from uh, the Washington football team and still see if this defense is as dominant as it is. But for Mike and for Micah, we'll see you on the next episode. Peace. Peace.